Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colm Quinn. We'll start, as we always do, with the region's news. The G7 foreign ministers endorsed a declaration on maritime security for the first time on April 15th, making specific reference to China's territorial claims in the East and South China Seas. The announcement bolsters Japan's efforts to receive Western backing over China-related security issues, with the G7 agreeing that they opposed attempts to press maritime claims through the use of intimidation, coercion or force. It was revealed this week that the United States and South Korea disagree in their intelligence assessments of North Korea's nuclear capability. On April 7th, the US commander of NORAD stated that North Korea had the capability, albeit untested, to strike the continental United States with a missile carrying a nuclear warhead. After requesting clarification, the South Korean vice defense minister disagreed and on April 13th said that Pyongyang did not yet have the necessary miniaturization capability based on his department's assessments. The split comes as Washington has reportedly begun to raise the issue with Seoul of deploying an advanced missile system called THAAD to the Korean Peninsula. Chinese President Xi Jinping will visit Pakistan on April 20th, where he's expected to initiate more than $40 billion worth of infrastructure projects and energy deals. In addition, an agreement to sell eight Chinese submarines to Pakistan may be finalized during the visit. In regional economic news, China's Q1 growth figures were released this week, reporting a slowdown to 7% for year-on-year growth. Despite various stimulus measures, the government reported a continued slowdown in construction, manufacturing and retail sales, alongside relatively even data for the service sector. Meanwhile, the IMF's new World Economic Outlook reported that the global recovery continues, but is moderate and uneven. The United States forecast dropped slightly to a 3.1% growth projection in 2015, while India saw a large upward revision in its 2015 projection to 7.2%, an increase of 1.2% from the IMF's January estimate. On Capitol Hill, a bipartisan bill granting President Obama fast-track authority, or trade promotion authority, was introduced by Senators Hatch and Wyden on April 16th to the Senate Finance Committee which would allow the president to present a final trade agreement to Congress for an up or down vote without lawmakers being able to amend the terms. TPA is viewed as critical to finalizing the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, trade negotiation. In a sign of warm US-India relations at the highest level, President Barack Obama wrote the profile of Prime Minister Narendra Modi for Time Magazine's annual list of the 100 most influential people around the world. Titled, India's reformer-in-chief, Obama detailed Modi's background, saying that the leader of the world's democracy and his life story from poverty to prime minister reflect the dynamism and potential of India's rise. The US Embassy in Bangkok and Pacific Command announced on April 15th that the United States has indefinitely postponed planning for Cobra Gold 2016. Held annually in Thailand, the massive multinational military exercise hosted by the United States' longtime ally is now in doubt as a result of continuing uncertainty about the future of Thai governance. The US scaled down its involvement in the 2015 edition of Cobra Gold following a May 2014 military coup. And that's the news. Now we turn to the analysis released this week on China's cyber espionage and the idea that its great firewall now has a great cannon for enforcing censorship. I sat down with CSIS Strategic Technologies Program Senior Fellow Denise Zheng to understand how these new capabilities work, what they tell us about China's strategy in cyberspace and what the US and others are doing about it. 
So this week, um, there was the news of China's great cannon, uh, a new tool in, in cyber warfare. Tell us a little bit about what that entails. Uh, Great Cannon is a cyber attack tool that security researchers believe the Chinese use to disrupt services that help internet users in China get around state censorship and get access to Western news and media outlets. Essentially what it does is it intercepts massive amounts of legitimate web traffic and then repurposes or redirects it to targets, uh, targeted networks that the attackers want to knock offline. In this case, it was intercepted um, internet traffic of unwitting non-Chinese users visiting Baidu websites or websites that use Baidu's ad network and redirected that traffic to flood anti-censorship services, including those hosted by GitHub, uh, which is a popular web service used by programmers to collaborate on software development. So it's, it's essentially a combination of what hackers call a quote-unquote man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, and using that to launch a distributed denial of service or DDoS attack. Is it is it obvious now that this is obviously a, a Chinese government uh, attack? It seems to be going against government dissidents. It seems to have the same hallmarks as some of its of other China internet tools, such as the Great Firewall. Yeah. So when you look at the attack infrastructure that was used and the code and the malware itself, there's a lot of similarities uh, between Great Cannon and other attacks that China has launched. And when you look at the target as well, you know, it's GitHub, it's their services that they're providing for anti-censorship. Um, it's pretty obvious what the source of the attack is. I'm, I'm wondering just about, about China's internet infrastructure in itself. It's able to shut down um, certain websites, certain websites aren't even available within China. Why not just do something like that? Is Why does it seem to be such a specific uh, target? This is really interesting because GitHub is an American company. It's, an, it's a service hosted in America. It's much more difficult for the Chinese to call up GitHub and say, hey, can you take down the service, right? And so this is much more offensive. It's much more active. It's uh, a different type of means for achieving an end. The Great Cannon is just another tool we've seen that the Chinese are using along their Great Firewall. What is this telling us about how China's relationship with, with cyber warfare, with cyber espionage is evolving? You know, the U.S. government has a pretty good sense of China's cyber capabilities. Um, we know that China is actively conducting cyber espionage for political purposes and to steal intellectual property for their domestic commercial advantage. And this has been known for a really long time. And as you may recall, the U.S. government actually indicted five PLA hackers in May of last year for uh, espionage against U.S. companies using cyber means. Great Cannon is more interesting in a way because it signals that the Chinese are taking a much more active approach to censorship. And they're intentionally attacking foreign websites using cyber means. To date, we've seen the Chinese deploy a range of different censorship tactics on the Internet. But most have been passive, like blocking access to certain websites or keyword filtering and the like. This is much more offensive. I mean, what do you think the U.S. response then should be? So the U.S. has not officially responded to the attacks on GitHub in particular. I'm not sure that it will. But what I do know is that the administration is actively looking at how to increase penalties and consequences for cyber attacks to signal that this type of activity is not okay. So one example is the executive order that uh, President Obama released on April 1st, 
which imposes economic sanctions on entities that engage in malicious cyber activity. Uh, but these sanctions in the EEO are designed to target significant cyber attacks, those that could do severe damage to our national security, to our foreign policy, or the health and resilience of our economy. The attack on GitHub does not exactly rise to that level. Um, but, you know, clearly the administration is looking at the various different tools they have at, the dis at their disposal and uh, looking to develop new tools to combat cybercrime. Do you think that this would lead to the U.S. eventually maybe charging China and trying to exact punishment on them? For the attacks on GitHub, uh, I, you know, I'm not really sure because there wasn't uh, severe economic or sec national security damage, right, damage to our national security. Um, but there are ongoing discussions about open internet, about censorship, and trying to promote free and open uh, use of the internet and technologies, communication technologies in China. Um, and, you know, I think that they'll be putting increasingly more pressure in light of these activities. Right. And I want to talk about, uh, you know, China's internet uh, plans, I suppose, which is they've been announced um, recently. And I think their, their internet um, SAR um, was talking about the expansion of, of Chinese e-commerce and, and trying to um, move their platforms out into the wider world. Surely attacks like this and the use of these um, use of Chinese search engines, use of Chinese internet infrastructure, surely people, you know, they're not going to want to use it outside of China if, if, uh, if it's connected to these sort of attacks. Well, you know, Baidu has put out a statement saying that they were not complicit in the attacks. You can decide whether or not to believe that. Um, but you make a very, very good point, which is that uh, Chinese companies want to get access to foreign markets, not just the Chinese market. I mean, they have a tremendous large market uh, domestically to serve, but ultimately the success of their tech industry means getting access to foreign markets. And uh, this kind of stuff really hurts the reputation of, of Chinese companies, in my opinion. Um, other measures that the government has imposed or is looking to impose in, in recent months and years that sort of provide protectionism or, you know, give preference to domestic vendors in China also give them a bad reputation. Now, it also hurts American companies that are trying to operate in China. And so this is a big trade issue. It's one that still hasn't been resolved. And it's, uh, it's probably not going to be resolved in, in quite a bit of time. Yeah, and it seems like this is a, you know, a, a government level thing, but it's it's also on a private sector level. It's Chinese government going after American companies. So where does the U.S. stand on this, and where can they stand on this? And you know, I said it's a trade issue, but is there anything the U.S. can do to, I suppose, put a put a stronger fist down on this and try and stop this kind of behavior? There are ongoing negotiations between the State Department, USTR, uh, through trade associations with their counterparts in China to, on these issues, and you know, promotion of, of free trade, of uh, uh, open standards, of common standards. You know, these are all issues that are kind of on the table and being negotiated. We saw just recently that China suspended their rules that apply to technology providers to the banking sector. So that is somewhat hopeful, I think, from the U.S. perspective. Uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, everyone is sort of looking to see how this all unfolds. And we're dealing with similar types of issues in other parts of the world, not just China. And, and I mean, on an individual level or, or even on a state level, say maybe smaller states in Asia that, that might see this and, and maybe be a little um, more wary, is there anything that 
that a state can do or even an individual, individual can do to counteract or to protect themselves when they're on the internet? It's tough, especially for countries and organizations that lack technical capacity, that lack the governance capacities to respond and mitigate to these types of attacks. As I'm sure you've heard in the case of Great Canton, uh, one thing that people can do is use encryption. So it's difficult for an attacker to conduct a man-in-the-middle style attack when the traffic is encrypted. But um, you know, in some other uh, you know campaigns that we've ch seen China conduct that are much more advanced, particularly the ones that we've uh, heard about um, targeting Southeast Asian countries and India most recently, these attacks are much more difficult to deter and to mitigate. Um, and so I think most organizations these days should, should just assume that they have been attacked or they will be attacked very soon and make sure that they have the incident response plans and the backup systems up and ready for that event. Okay, well, Denise, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that was Denise Shang. Next up is our weekly leaderboard, our profile of a key individual shaping policy in Asia. This week we profile Natalie Lichtenstein. Natalie Lichtenstein is the adjunct professor of Chinese studies at the Johns Hopkins SICE. She is currently serving as the chief counsel for the Secretariat managing the establishment of the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB. Prior to her current position, Lichtenstein spent nearly 30 years as a lawyer with the World Bank, advising on the bank's lending activities in Asia, with particular emphasis on China. Lichtenstein's appointment as chief counsel was first announced in November 2014 in advance of the first AIB chief negotiators meeting. She has since been playing an important role in framing the bank's charter, which will set the terms under which the bank is established and the basic guidelines for its operation. Given that much of the debate surrounding the AIB has focused on whether or not it will adhere to the high standards championed by the United States and others, Lichtenstein's role in crafting the AIB's Articles of Agreement is a vital one. Her experiences with the World Bank are seen as enhancing the credibility of pledges from Beijing that the AIB will operate under the highest standard of its kind. Lichtenstein is well versed in the challenges of governing international institutions. During her last decade with the World Bank, she specialised in issues related to reforming the governance and structure of the 70-year-old institution. Her final assignment focused on the reallocation of shares and chairs to increase developing countries' voices within the overall World Bank group. Moving forward, Lichtenstein will ensure that the AIB's founding members are well informed regarding international best practices as they continue the process of negotiating the institution's articles of agreement. Whether or not those best practices will be reflected in the final document remains to be seen, but it is clear that amidst rising scrutiny, the negotiating parties will not lack quality advice. This week, our CSIS Wadwani chair hosted India's finance minister, Arun Jaitley, for a speech on India's economy and commercial ties with the United States. Here are some of the highlights. Mr. Richard Rosso, Dr. Ramesh Wadwani, Mr. Nainan, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I'm extremely delighted to be here during this dialogue conference that you have on deepening the U.S.-India commercial ties. And I've been asked to speak on India's demographic transition, the opportunities for partnership. But I do realize that the width of the subject uh, really would go much beyond uh, 
the normal parameters of a subject like demography. Where India's working population, and if I take uh, the lower base of the working population, literally increases by millions every year. One estimate is that uh, the population between 15 and 59 years was 58% of our population in 2001. And in 2021, it is expected to be about 64% of our population. So that broadly indicates that uh, the percentage of uh, younger working hands in India is unusually large. And therefore, it is uh, incumbent for any government, any political system, to meet the challenge of providing jobs to these people, skills to these people, provide good health, good education, so that they can be prepared for a much larger role in the years to come. How do we foresee over the next few years coping up with this challenge? I think the first obvious answer is that India's own normal in terms of its growth rate has to target anything close to a double digit. India growing at 5%, 6%, even 7% is not an India which is going to face up to this challenge. And I do believe that India has that potential to make 9 to 10% its new normal in the years to come. How do we reach that roadmap? And once we achieve that, to generate jobs for the ability of this uh, population is going to be, though challenging, reasonably possible. The roadmap which we've currently laid for ourselves, the first aspect of that is that we are very strongly strengthening all our regional, our state, provincial governments. Financially, we've seen an era where all our state governments literally had to run to the center for resources. Today, it's a different ballgame altogether. Conventionally, we have been speaking and paying lip sympathy to a commonly used phrase in India, which is cooperative federalism. But we actually now see it in action. In the new partnership between the center and the states, the revenue of the states has been hugely increased so that they can invest a lot more both in social infrastructure and physical infrastructure. They can invest a lot more in their poverty alleviation schemes. So each state this year onwards is going to get 10% more than what it did in the previous years. This has also led to another form of uh, federalism in India, which we've now started referring to as competitive federalism. State after state is competing with each other. They are competing to woo investments. They are competing uh, 
to provide a better infrastructure, they are competing to create better universities, and so on. Now, that's, that's a process which is on. The second emphasis we've, which we've laid down is increased significantly our investment in infrastructure. In this year's budget itself, my uh, expenditure on infrastructure exceeded uh, uh, about $12 billion. Now, our main emphasis is to start rebuilding our national highways. It was a great program which was started when Mr. Vajpayee was in power. Last few years, it slowed down and slowed down significantly. And therefore, a lot of public investment is now being put both into the railways, both in uh, uh, national highways, in rural roads. In fact, one of the advantages that we've had of the lowering of the oil prices, that through a process of cess, we've converted a very significant part of the lowering of the oil prices. A lot of it goes to the, has been passed on to the consumer, but a very significant part which comes as a cess to the central government is being diverted into these three programs, rural roads, highways, and railway infrastructure. Our emphasis uh, on uh, manufacturing, because that's where the jobs are going to be. And therefore, the roadmap which the government has laid for itself is we've opened our doors for investment. Some of the sectors which had conventionally not been opened up uh, have been opened up, and by and large, it's been a welcome move in India. There are very few sectors now, uh, almost uh, uh, insignificant, which still remain closed. Everything has been opened up. Recently, in the last few months, we've taken the step of opening out insurance in a big way. We've opened our defense sector in a big way. We've opened up railway infrastructure, our uh, uh, real estate sector. Now, these were some of the sectors on which we had been conventionally conservative, but now these all have been opened up for investment. After having opened them up for investment, the next stage is when both domestic and international investors come in, how do we ease in our systems so that uh, investing in India itself becomes more attractive? There had been a legitimate complaint that between the time when an investor takes a decision to invest and the actual launch of his project, he has to run to dozens of offices. Uh, 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 there are many challenges before him. And therefore, the time spent in this itself may be a few years before he can actually start the process. Now, this is something which uh, I would say is still work in progress. We are trying to narrow down that period and therefore, I've, in fact, in this year, set up a new committee to look into the whole mechanism of how the whole institution of prior permissions can be replaced by a regulatory mechanism, where it's far easier to start your business just complying with the guidelines which have been uh, stated in that area. As far as our taxation laws are concerned, there had been conventionally a lot of legacy issues. It had been a fairly hostile system, some people mentioned. In the last few months, I'll be speaking on it separately at a function tomorrow, so I'm not elaborating at this moment in detail as to the steps which we are taking to smoothen up the entire taxation system itself. There are sectors which we've opened up in a big way. 
our mining sector, our coal sector, and the auctions which we've held in these areas have been a huge success. The entire possibility of anybody calling a decision of the government questionable itself has been completely eliminated. And hence, once these sectors and the manufacturing activity which results from these sectors, coupled with our emphasis on infrastructure, all this, uh, uh, over the next few years, we start seeing the result of all this activity in infrastructure and manufacturing. I have not the least doubt that from where we consider today around 8% growth, which we hope we are going to achieve this year, the ability to march forward towards that double-digit growth over the next few years is going to be reasonably possible. Uh, one of our very big challenges has been, and that's still a contentious issue, has been the land law in India, particularly the one which was uh, legislated in 2013. I have no hesitation in saying that the land law, if it remains in the present shape, is a hurdle to employment creation. In fact, one of the purposes, and I think that's one of the key purposes, uh, the most important one in terms of uh, using India's demography, is one particular provision in the land law in the context of the subject that I would like to point out. One of the areas where we are trying to easen the acquisition process is what we call the creation of industrial corridors. Now, unlike uh, an industrial park or an industrial hub, an industrial corridor is a narrow corridor which runs along a national highway, which runs along a railway track, where you have industries on both sides of the road. Now, this is capable of providing employment to vast number of people in rural India. We currently have the Delhi-Mumbai corridor, which is being uh, built. It's 1,200 kilometers. You have the Calcutta-Amritsar, same distance which is being built. So you'll have townships, smart cities, uh, industries running across this whole corridor. 300 million people in India are landless. And when we talk in terms of using India's demography, the urban people are capable of finding a job for themselves. The landed peasantry is capable of finding work for itself. But it is those 300 million landless, which is almost close to a quarter of India's population, for whom industrialization of the areas where they are staying in, that's the rural areas, and it is these narrow corridors which are capable of providing a big uh, 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 opportunity in these particular areas. And I see one of the biggest challenges of the land law which we are trying to amend, which is currently uh, uh, a lot an issue in India, would be this would be the net advantage of that land law if uh, it could be passed in the coming days itself. Our program to have uh, a hundred new smart cities in India. Now, we've uh, uh, seen the first experiment. Um, last week, uh, I had an opportunity to launch what is strictly India's first smart city. It's also a special economic zone, a financial sector hub in Gujarat, in Gandhinagar. And the financial model on which it has been built is where land and the right to build on that land we call it the FSI or the FAR in India, itself is being used as a resource. And that resource entirely is the state's investment. 
No more revenue from the state exchequers has been required. That's the financial model on which it has been built. And it's been an excellent success. Uh, the response to this has been uh, extremely good. Uh, it's something which is worth emulating. Our skill development program has just started. And I think it's the success of this program itself which eventually can take us in the direction of generating a huge workforce with a large potential for employment itself. The weakest sections of society in India, we've started a huge social security program, we call it the Janadhan uh, uh, program, where every economically deprived person who had no access to a bank, a banking facility he's been linked to. Today we are in the process of uh, cash transfer to his accounts, supported by a social security program itself, uh, which the government has launched in this current budget, which in the course of uh, some questions, if there's an opportunity, I'll try to explain in detail. That was India's Aaron Jaitley speaking at CSIS. Now on to our one to watch. This week, Time magazine released the Time 100, its annual profile of 100 influential global figures. This year, Asia featured prominently. The list included 15 individuals from the Indo-Pacific, ranging from North Korea's young dictator Kim Jong-un to Japanese home organising guru Marie Kondo. Afghanistan's First Lady Rula Ghani and Indonesia's President Joko, Jokowi Widodo, made the list, as did Chinese entrepreneurs Jimmy Lei and Lei Jun. China's internet czar Liu Wei was also included, along with President Xi Jinping. In South Asia, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, ICICI Bank CEO Shanda Kokar, as well as Pakistan's Nobel Prize winner Malala Yousafzai also featured. While Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella was included, he immigrated to the United States from India in the late 1980s and holds U.S. citizenship. Two additional leaders have compelling stories that may be even more indicative of the future born in North America to Asian immigrant families. Fashion trendsetter Alexander Wang is an American, born to Taiwanese-American parents, and Joanne Liu, the current president of Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, is Canadian, born to first-generation Chinese immigrant parents, demonstrating that cross-cultural ties continue to strengthen across the Pacific. And that's our show for this week. You can always find more at cogitasia.com and csis.org. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.